Today we'd like to recover the 12th verse again. First 12 verses kind of fit together and then the last few verses beginning with verse 12 sort of fit together too. Though the whole chapter really fits together beautifully and quite well. So let's look first of all again at verse 12. James 1.12 Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he is tested, tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them who love him. The crown of life, what a wonderful thought. Life in its full meaning. Life indicating fellowship with God Almighty and Christ his son, a crown of life that lasts forever and ever. We need to rededicate and give ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. It talked about testings that would come in verses one through four. Then it talked about asking God for wisdom, verse five. It talked about rich people and poor people. It talked about here successfully enduring testing. Goes on with this thought in verse 13, but a little different angle. Verses two through four basically are talking about ordinary testing in life. They particularly had persecution because they were Christians. It was a new religion. And even today there is, in many places, very severe persecution. And I fear even in our own country it's getting worse. But here beginning in verse 13, it's talking a different kind of uh, temptation. Temptation to moral evil to do something that is morally bad. Let no man, beginning in verse 13, say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, because God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither does he tempt any man or woman. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Do not err, my beloved brothers. Don't be deceived. Don't blame God. Realize that there is a selfish sin nature that we all possess. Recognize we have our own share of giving in to moral temptation that is wrong. Don't point the finger at God, but point the finger at ourselves. Now you may, if you were here last Sunday, remember we talked about an aviator. 
It's so important, that illustration, I'd like to repeat it again today. In the resisting of temptation and in the going through trials, we need to rise higher, closer to God. The last song I noticed talked about rising higher in song. But what about this illustration of an aviator? It was years ago, evidently before the pressurizing of cabins and airplanes so they could fly higher. At any rate, there was a pilot. His name was Page. He had landed in Arabia. And then he took off. He was up in the air, and he heard a gnawing sound, a rat gnawing on something. He realized this could be very bad. This is very dangerous. What in the world could he do? Remember, they didn't have pressurized cabins. At least his was not. And then he remembered something, that rats cannot survive at very high altitude. So he decided he would fly up higher and higher. That's what he did. He flew up so high that he was finding difficulty in breathing. Well, finally then he came down. And when he eventually landed, guess what? He found a dead rat. <laughs> and so the illustration is very obvious. When we encounter temptation and testing, we need to rise higher. We need to get closer to God. We need to not only decide to resist temptation, but to resist it in the power and help of God himself. Don't blame God. Trust God and give yourself to him. Accept his righteousness and his victorious power. In these verses, we're finding that it's talking about this unrighteousness that proceeds from ourselves. Go over with me to 1 John chapter 2, just a few books beyond. Here's what it says in verse 16, chapter 2. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, or the desire of the flesh, and the lust or desire of the eyes and the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. So don't blame God. Look within. Rise higher. Trust God. We need to have victory in our lives, do we not, daily, to honor God. Go over to chapter 5 here in 1 John. Here's what it says about overcoming and being victorious. Chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. For whatever is born from God overcomes the world. We saw back there in chapter 2 what the world is. Things from within, particularly. This is the victory that overcomes the world our faith, our trust in God. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus 
is the Son of God. Victory, you see, is through faith. Through rising higher, it's getting closer to God and trusting him completely and fully. It says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. First, we saw that happen with Adam and Eve, and we see it continuing to happen throughout the world today. But you know, it's wonderful that God has promised us a way out. Before I became a Christian, I was memorizing some Bible verses. One of them was 1 Corinthians 10, 13. <clears throat> In that verse, we discover that when we're tested, it tells us that God will not allow us to be tested above that we're able to handle. But instead, he will provide a way out so that we may successfully endure the temptation, victoriously win over it. Again, we see that that is promised, God's victory in our lives. I like how it is promised also in the book of Galatians. In Galatians 5, 16, we find these wonderful words. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the desire, the lust of the flesh. So one of the basic things is to live close to God, to let God have control of our lives, to give ourselves continuously to him, to rise up in prayer, to avoid that which is wrong, to trust him. Going on then, back in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, James 1, 16 through 18. <clears throat> When lust ha <clears throat> do not err, my beloved brothers, <clears throat> every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Notice what God is called, Father of lights, not of darkness, to whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. You see, God gives us good gifts. Not only do we not blame him, we thank him for the good gifts he gives. They're from the Father of lights. They come down from heaven. They come down from him. And he, he doesn't vary. You know, maybe you thought of that verse as I read this. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not vary. God is constant and true, and he stands behind what he promises. There's no shadow of turning even with him, not even a semblance. And then here in verse 18, of his own will, it was his choice, he fathered us, he begat us, he conceived us with the word of truth. Ah, born again by what? God's word, God's gospel, God's truth. God's truth tells us who Jesus is. He's God's eternal son. 
He died on the cross for the sins of the world, including us. He was victoriously, gloriously raised from the dead into a new and marvelous and eternal body. By the word of truth, we are fathered into eternal life. But it isn't just the word of truth. When Jesus talked to a religious leader whose name was Nicodemus, you can read all about that in John chapter 3. Not only did he say it's necessary to have this spiritual birth, this birth that we saw here occurs by truth and God's word, the gospel, but he emphasized then with Nicodemus that it was not a physical thing, it was not a thing of mankind, it was a thing by the Holy Spirit. In John 3, 7 and 8, he tells him, don't be amazed that I said you need to be born again. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound, but you can't tell where it's coming from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So we learn we're not only born again spiritually by God's word, but we're also born again through the operation of God's Holy Spirit. This is beyond psychology. This is beyond our own thinking. It's God's work. And so as you put your faith in Christ, you have experienced this. No question, if you truly have repented and trusted in the Lord Jesus, you're spiritually a new person, born by the Spirit and by the Word. Back to 118 of James, of his own will, he fathered us by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We're kind of the beginning of a new spiritual race, as it were. Therefore, my beloved brothers, and here makes a great conclusion here. Here he comes to very much the heart of, of the book of James. The heart of it is also found in the last part of chapter 2, a little different angle. 19, wherefore, my beloved brothers, let every man be three things. One, swift to hear. Two, slow to speak. Three, slow to wrath or anger. Swift to hear. Are we quick to listen? to what people have to say, and especially are we quick to listen to the truths of God. That's what we need to be quick about doing, listening. How many times, though, people are only interested in what they're going to say? And while somebody else is talking, they're kind of shutting them out, and they're figuring out what clever thing they're going to say instead, instead of really listening. And sometimes if you really want to help somebody, you need to pay attention where they're coming from, what they're saying, what they're thinking. We should be that, swift, quick, to listen. But then secondly, we're to be slow to speak, not quick to mouth off, 
and give our great opinions. And in some cases, what we, <laughs> people are always right, and they're experts on every subject, so they think. But we should be slow to speak. It's been pointed out, maybe you've thought about it, how many ears do we have? We have two ears. How many mouths, how many tongue, how many throat? Well, one. Maybe that ought to kind of give us a clue <laughs> to what it's saying here. Swift to hear, slow to speak. There's some things that back up this thought in the book of Proverbs. In fact, there are a lot of things. First of all, let's go to Proverbs chapter 29. Chapter 29, we find in verse 20. Here's what it says. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? In other words, quick to speak. <laughs> there is more hope of a fool than of him. <laughs> Sometimes it really kind of slaps you in the face, doesn't it, what the scripture tells us. Hasty in his words. Instead, we're to be slow to speak. Then go back to chapter 17 of Proverbs, verse 28. 17, 28. I had a friend, that, the one that really introduced me to Bible memorization through the navigators. Once when I was in seminary, he dropped by to see me. <laughs> and I remember, this is the verse he shared with me, especially this verse. Last verse of Proverbs 17. Even a fool, when he holds his peace, is considered wise. And he who shuts his lips is considered a man of understanding. <laughs> and I kind of wonder, why did he say that to me? Well, maybe there's a good reason. <laughs> maybe I need to learn a little bit at points to be swift to hear and slow to speak. Still in Proverbs, let's go back to chapter 15. Here in verse 28, we have something I believe that gives us some guidance. 1528 of Proverbs, the heart of the righteous studies to answer. We think about what we're going to answer. We think ahead of time what we're going to say. Now, have you ever said anything that you wish you hadn't said it? <laughs> I have. I'm sure all of you have. It's been said, neither a stone nor a word can be called back. <laughs> the ripples will be occurring whether we want it or not. So we need to think before we open our mouths. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. It goes on to say the third thing. Sometimes we say, speak ill-advisedly, and it upsets other people. It can es escalate into an argument, and even a wrathful, angry kind of argument. So we need to stop it at the source. Think what you're going to say. Pray about it. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, as it says in the book of Colossians. 
slow to speak, slow to anger. Now notice what it says here in verse, beginning verse 21. Actually, back in verse 20. Because the anger, the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay apart all filthiness, old King James says, superfluity of naughtiness. (laughs) That can be translated better. It talks about overflowing wickedness in the revised version. Lay apart all those things and receive with meekness, with humility, the engrafted word. It talks about God's word again. I'm impressed that it says engrafted. It's not just a superficial thing. It becomes a part of us. It's grafted into our very being. Ever think about that? God's word really engrafted. A part of us it has become. And it adds, which is able to save your souls. Let's pick up then here with verse 22. Here is really the heart, one of the basic teachings of the book of James. Apparently, James felt a need to say this. He felt the people needed to hear this. There was a problem that he observed. Verse 22, James 1, but be doers of the word and not only hearers, deceiving your own selves. That's worthy of repetition, is it not? But you be doers of the word, not only hearers, deceiving your own selves. We find a beautiful picture of this kind of thing back in the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel, chapter 33, verses 31 and 32. And they come to you, God's talking to Ezekiel, they come to you as the people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they will not do them, because with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goes after their covetousness, their greed. And look, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument because they hear your words, but they don't do them. (laughs) So you see, way back then, this same issue was brought before the people. It's not enough to hear and even to enjoy and like the truth. It's necessary to translate it into life, to hear and to do what God wants us to do. How important that is. It's easy to take in God's word and to learn his word. It's easy if we're open to it, but we need to put it into practice. Not to put it into practice 
might be illustrated by something that happened to me when I was, I think, 10 years old, thereabout. We lived in Fullerton in Southern California, and at this particular evening or night, we went to a parade in Anaheim. As you know, that's where Disneyland now is. It wasn't there when I was 10 years old. But we went there, and I remember very clearly, I can almost see it in my mind, so impressive. There was somebody sitting in a chair, probably a wheelchair, and his head was like that big, and his body about the same length. He had a huge, huge, huge head. I've never seen anybody like that since. And a heart goes out to somebody like that. But perhaps that can be used as an illustration of filling our head with facts and knowledge and truths, but not putting them into active practice in our lives. And a big head can also cause a lot of pride, not in that kind of a situation, but spiritually speaking. And so we need to fight against that proud head, that big head filled with knowledge that isn't translating that into spiritual activity, into obedience following the Lord. 1 John 3 18 says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So what James is saying, John is also saying, put it into action in our daily lives. When I was in seminary, I heard something that was quite interesting. There was a Bible store in, in Anaheim, again, that particular city next to Fullerton where I lived. Sometimes I went to that Bible store and I learned there that one of my friends, Bob Kevorkian, he was pastor of the First Baptist Church of Anaheim. In fact, once he came over to my house to have me try to help him learn Spanish since I'd done work in Spanish. But I heard there at the Bible store what he had done, I think, the very Sunday before for his sermon, something quite unusual. What was that? His sermon was reading the book of James. <laughs> Evidently, he must have believed God wanted him to do that, but I understand some of the people really didn't care for that. <laughs> but maybe they needed to hear that, I don't know. But the book of James is very practical. It deals with how we speak, how we live. In fact, chapter 3, the first half, talks about speaking again, using our tongue. Now let's look in, back in James at verse 25, chapter 1.
But whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man should be blessed in his doing. Now earlier in a couple of verses I didn't read, it talks about the person that hears and doesn't do likened to somebody that looks into a mirror. Ah, oh, I need to comb my hair. I need to fix my face. <laughs> my wife has a, a cute expression, putting on her face. <laughs> and then he goes away and he forgets what he looked like. <laughs> Didn't do anything about it. He said the person that hears and doesn't do is like that. But on the other hand, whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty, verse 25, and continues in it, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this person, this man, shall be blessed in his deed, in his doing. So as, as we put God's word into practice, there's a blessing that comes to it. And notice the term, perfect law of liberty. Interesting phrase. Chapter 2, verse 12, So speak you, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Back in Galatians, it says, don't use our liberty as an occasion to the flesh, to give in to the fallen sinful desires. It's the lusts. Don't say, okay, God, I have freedom. I have liberty, liberty to sin. Well, Bible does anything but teach that. So don't use it and think of it in that way. But thank God for the perfect law of liberty. We're freed from the Old Testament law. It's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he instituted a new testament, a new law, as it were, a new covenant, a new agreement between God and man. He instituted it in his blood, which on communion Sundays we especially observe and remember. These are wonderful thoughts, are they not? In John 8, Jesus also said, If the Son therefore shall make you free, free you shall be free indeed. He's talking about freedom from sin. Talking about the power of Jesus to transform us and give us victory over sin and the fallen nature in our very lives. And we have victory in other ways as we have seen as well. I like the last couple of verses here in James 1. Very practical kind of thing here. Verses 26 and 7. If anyone among you seems to be religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is what? <laughs> Vain or futile. So don't kid ourselves. A part of real religion is to properly controlling what we say, how we hear, how we control our emotions. This man's religion is vain. He deceives himself. We saw earlier we shouldn't be deceived. And then he tells us what pure, real, genuine religion is. Verse 27, what could that be? If you didn't see this in front of you, how would you define it? 
how would you define real, genuine religion? True faith, how would you say it is? He says a very, very practical way he defines it here. 27, pure religion and undefiled mean pure, uh, without sin, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. Okay, here it is. Here's the answer. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. That's quite a definition of pure, genuine religion, faith. Now, he doesn't just mean visit the fatherless and the orphans say hi to him, pat him on the back. He's talking about visiting him in a way that's helpful beyond that, assisting them in paying the bills. They didn't have Social Security and other ways that the government would jump in and help such people in those days. If they were to be helped, they had to help themselves or other people had to jump in and also help them. So that's what he's saying here. Pure, real, true religion is this. Go and help somebody that has a genuine need. Encourage them. Give them needful things. Well, he talks about that too, doesn't he, in the next chapter, chapter 2, about someone that needs food and clothes. And you pat them on the back. You know, God bless you, brother, sister, but you don't help them when you have the ability to help them. Now, if you don't have the ability to do so, that's another situation. But assuming you have the ability and you don't help them, a fellow brother or sister, a widow, an orphan, then it says your religion is vain. It's futile, not worth anything. Not only that, he says, to keep himself unspotted from the world. There is a new kind of life God expects of his people, a victory over the fallen nature to turn away from the things that would defile and make us live in an, a filthy, wrong, sinful kind of way. So to have genuine faith is to live a life of purity and to help fellow Christians and others in need when we're able to do so. Even if we don't have the financial ability, there's always prayer, real, genuine prayer. Years ago, when I pastored First Baptist Church in Susanville, we had a family that belonged there. The lady has kept contact with us. She still belongs there. It's now called... Cold Springs Community Church used to be called First Baptist Church, still a Baptist church. Anyway, the other day she called and she asked that June and I pray for her son, David, who apparently had had a bit of a stroke and was in a hospital down in Sacramento. So fine, I said we would and she wanted me to pray on the phone with her, so I did. And I told June about it, and we started praying. Well, she called yesterday, and with good news, she said, David's come home. And uh, she also earlier had said that 
or maybe that's when she also said that she is happy she can call on us, even though basically I'm not the pastor there anymore, but call on us for help like this in prayer. It's so important that we give a good witness by how we live our lives and how we come alongside other people when they're going through some difficulties. We need to do this as God's people here, do we not? We need to truly love one another. We need to experience genuine faith, genuine love, genuine following God. And like the Father of Lights, we knew lead to allow him to shine his light brightly through our lives every day, at home, at work, in our neighborhood, wherever we may be. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Shall we bow in prayer, prayer of dedication. Lord God, thank you, Lord, that you set the example, the example of true love and giving, the example of truly being a son or daughter of God. May we now commit ourselves anew and afresh to that. With all our hearts, may we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we believe his truth. May we accept his word. May we thank him for his Holy Spirit, causing us to be born anew spiritually as we trust. Thank you for the book of James. Thank you, Lord, for its very practical teachings to each of us, its encouragement to our lives to continue in the faith in a vital and living way. May we do that. To you be all the glory and praise and honor. In the Lord Jesus' name, amen.